I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. It might seem very strange that Jesus says there's a sin that can't be forgiven. The day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and proclaimed that uh, if you repent, your sins would be forgiven. In Paul and Peter's and um, James and John, the letters in the New Testament, uh, often the theme is the forgiveness of sins. Jesus often forgave people when he healed them. And even in his dying breath, he forgave the thief on the cross next to him. So how can he say there's a sin that can't be forgiven? In the Old Testament, we meet a compassionate God who buries our sins in the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west. So the prophet says, who is a pardoning God like you? Doesn't this verse contradict all of that? Well, let's have a look at Mark chapter 3 this morning and you might like to open your Bibles there because we're going to look at it fairly closely and I won't be showing the slides of Mark chapter 3. We will go to other places and I'll put some slides up there but if you're in chapter 3 with me of Mark, you'll find uh, that's the passage we're going to look at fairly closely. Mark chapter 3 and beginning at verse 20. In this little section we meet two groups of people Jesus' family and Jesus' foes. And both could be candidates for the unforgivable sin. Well, one of his family, let's read from chapter 3 and verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he is out of his mind. He is out of his mind. Their intention was to take him home, to have him committed to their care. Uh, Their motivation, they mistook Jesus' passion and zeal for madness. They mistook his sense of mission for a deranged mind. They may also be afraid that Jesus' actions would cause some sort of a backlash in the community in which they lived. The synagogue was all important in in the local community, in the township. And if Jesus somehow was excommunicated from the synagogue, that would have effects on them. It would affect their social and their uh, religious life, their economic life. And so they were caring for themselves in this sense. What is straightforward in this section, however, is that they fundamentally misunderstand who Jesus is. They just don't get him. Have a look at verse 31. And you see that Mary herself uh, is there in that party of family and friends. Her motives are probably to protect her son, uh, but she too wants to control him and to take him home. Is this the unforgivable sin that Jesus speaks about later on? Thinking that Jesus is out of his mind? Well, we'll have to wait and see. What the text does tell us, however, is that it's often friends and family who misunderstand our passion for God. Have you experienced that? You might have been a child at a younger age who could swim and your parents got up early in the morning and you trained very hard and uh, they've sacrificed things for you so that you could train and achieve. 
It may have been an athlete who had to go out and train after school. You may have been someone who was a fanatic football follower, probably followed the Sharks and uh, got all the gear and dressed up and went to all the games and cheered as they watched the television. You may have been someone who was encouraged by your family to do something in the commercial world, to be a success, to go to work early and to come home late. But let someone be passionate about their faith. Let someone want to be a decided Christian. Let someone give up worldly success for gospel ministry and you label them a fanatic or a fool. It's okay to get up early. That's good. That's good for you and to do these things. But if you're a Christian, well, that's totally different. Don't waste your time doing that. I don't know. Maybe you still live with this kind of misunderstanding from your family. Well, you need to be encouraged in this passage because so did Jesus. The assessment of his family and his friends was that he was out of his mind. He was taking it all far too seriously. If your family's told you you're taking your religion far too seriously, rejoice in that because you're in good company. That's what Jesus' family told him. Second focus in the passage is on Jesus' foes, his enemies. And what's their assessment of Jesus? If his family were motivated, I think, by concern and love for him, to sort of take him away, away from the problems that he was uh, up against, uh, these people, this second group, don't conceal their contempt and their hatred and their open hostility. Have a look at verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. These scribes came down from Jerusalem. Now physically that's quite a drop. Jerusalem's up fairly high, down to the Sea of Galilee. You drop again and then way down to the Dead Sea, which is below sea level. But Mark's not just talking about a physical drop. I think he's talking about something a bit more spiritual here. These men came down from on high, from on top. They came down with all their education, with all their knowledge of the law. They were the theological experts. They were the heavy hitters. They knew that Jesus had never attended any of the great rabbinical schools like they had, that he wasn't qualified to speak on such matters. So they came down to pass judgment. They weren't there to investigate. They didn't come with an open mind to listen to Jesus, to discuss with him. Before they'd even arrived, they'd made up their mind. They were going to confront him. They were going to correct him. And they were going to condemn him publicly. They were going to make a great show of their office and their authority to silence him once and for all. They said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. Now, some of the other Gospels record this event as well. And they say that these guys arrive just as Jesus is healing a demon-possessed man who's unable to speak or hear. He's in a terrible situation. We're told that Jesus casts out the demon, heals the man, and in response to that, the crowd says, who is this man? Could this be the son of David? It's a good question, isn't it, after Jesus performs a miracle? Is this the long-awaited Messiah? But the scribes aren't listening to that. 
They're not amazed like the crowd. They declared Jesus to be an instrument of Satan. Jesus' family might have thought he was a bit dodgy. These guys think he's possessed by evil itself. The very essence of Jesus is evil. They were saying, in effect, that Satan, the father of lies, the great adversary of God, was indwelling Jesus. He's referred to here as Beelzebub, which comes from the old Canaanite religion of the worship of Baal. Literally, it means Lord of the Dunghill. The Dunghill attracts flies, hence William Golding's book, Lord of the Flies. And if you've read that book, you know that's a book about the innate state of evil in us. And given the right circumstances, that innate evil rises to the surface. And so they called Jesus one who's controlled by the Lord of the Dunghill. These scribes are not just saying that Jesus draws on Satan's power. They say Jesus is totally possessed by him. He's the total opposite of what we know in the Gospels to be true. The exact image reversed. The miracles, rather than demonstrating the power of a loving God, were seen as demonstrating the power of Satan himself. Now, what do you do if you're Jesus? Well, you give them a parable. You provide a word picture for them, and then you give them a statement. Well, there's a couple of parables here, but firstly, Jesus starts off with a challenge. Have a look at verse 23. How can Satan drive out Satan? It just doesn't make sense, does it? Why would Satan want to work against himself? And then Jesus continues with this little parable. If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. What's he talking about here? Well, he's saying that Satan is the, uh, the king in a kingdom. He's the ruler of a kingdom. It's a theme that's found throughout the New Testament. Uh, Satan, we're told, is called the prince of this world. He's the god of this age, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit working in those who are disobedient. Humanity generally is under the dominion of Satan. They just don't know it. And their revolt against God by either ignoring him or by throwing things back in his face, the things they know to be wrong, they continue to do, shows that they are Satan's puppet. Satan is the ruler of the kingdom. Then Jesus uses a second little picture where Satan is the owner of a house. He goes on and he says, if a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that since Satan is interested in raw power, that a house divided against itself will self-destruct. Again, you see, Jesus is saying, is it likely that Satan would act through Jesus to expel demons using demonic power when the effects are so life-changing? Again, it doesn't make sense. Jesus heals people to bring life, and they're saying, it's Satan that does this. Well, Satan doesn't want to bring life. Satan wants to bring death and destruction and decay, to destroy. They're the words that describe Satan. If Satan acted this way, it'd be suicidal. It would, it would impact upon himself. Verse 26, Jesus goes on. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. He's destroying himself. Satan is the owner of the house. He rules the hearts and the minds in that house. He owns the culture and the values and the priorities and the interests of that house. 
Jesus is describing our world here. That's the house he's talking about. Satan himself is a strong man that stands behind the workers of darkness. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's have a look. I was told this mightn't work, so I might have to look it up. Ephesians chapter 6, and let me read it to you. Uh, Paul says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Now, Paul here is not talking about the politicians. (laughs) They're not the dark forces. We might think they are. Uh, nor is he talking about those who govern our big corporations, nor the celebrities, the sports stars and the, uh, the journalists who have so much interest over us, nor the media magnets, nor those on reality TV shows who want their 15 seconds of fame and make statements about things they know nothing about. No, rather he's talking about the power that lies behind these sorts of people. Some social commentators refer to it as the deep state, the wheels behind the wheels. Uh, and there are quite a few movies and um, TV productions about this deep state, the things underlying what the government does and what the big corporations do, you know, those secret deals done in back rooms with boffins everywhere and things like that. There's actually a fairly interesting article in uh, Southern Cross magazine about that called Cultural Marxism. And if you have a look at that, it it talks about uh, why tolerance is the key word nowadays and what it actually means and how tolerance is actually defined as intolerance. And I think we've seen that in the media of late. But what we do find out is that uh, Satan is a real and dark person in this deep state. He's the one behind what's going on. The world is Satan's house and Jesus describes himself in the text as an intruder. Uh, Luke in his version refers to Jesus as a stronger man who comes along and defeats the strong man. Let me have a look at Luke chapter 11 and read it to you. Uh, When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. He overpowers or binds a strong man, which is exactly what Jesus came into the world to do. Uh, he entered the strong man's house. He disturbed the power of, of Satan through his incarnation. He's done this by his perfect obedience and his resisting temptation. He's done it by the miracles he's performed. He's demonstrated his power over sickness and evil and death. And by his own resurrection and death, he demonstrates it yet again. See, Jesus has come into the world to bind Satan. It's the same word that John uses in the book of Revelation. And Revelation chapter 20, where we get the uh, picture of the end times, we read this. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people. 
the city he loves. But the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Satan, we're told, just prior to that, is bound for a thousand years. And uh, a thousand years uh, in uh, Revelation uh, literally means the, the church age, from the time that Jesus arrived to the end of the church age. And he's talking about um, the fact that Satan is seized and bound by Jesus at the beginning of that age. You might be thinking, well, Satan doesn't look very bound. Um, I, I look at the world around me and I see persecution of Christians. I see bombs going off in churches. I see public vilification of those who speak openly about their faith. It doesn't look as though Satan's bound very much, does it? But the text in the book of uh, Revelation says that he is. Let me go back to Revelation chapter 20 again and uh, let me read verses 1 to 3 of that text. Revelation 20 verses 1 to 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is evil of Satan and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked it, sealed it over to keep him from deceiving the nations. And more until the thousand years were ended. And after this, he must be set free for a short time. So Satan is bound for a thousand years, but he's bound so that he might not deceive the nations. That's what it's all about. Since Jesus came to the world, where's the gospel been going? Well, it says at the end of the Matthew, Jesus says to his disciples, go out and take the world the word to the nations. Take them out so that people can hear. So they might not be deceived. Now I'm not speaking about the book of Revelation today, but if I was and I read on, as I've just done, I'd, I'd, I'd be able to tell you that uh, Satan is controlled by Jesus up until those last days when he comes out with more power. But the, the, he, he raises this army to fight against uh, Jesus in the Battle of Armageddon and he raises them from the four corners of the earth. They rise into battle and then fire comes down from heaven and it's all over. There's no fight. Satan is, is defeated. It reminds me of that um, scene in the initial uh, Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think Indiana Jones is running through some town in Morocco or somewhere in the, in, in the top of Africa and he's been fighting off people who, with whips and so on and suddenly the crowd parts and there's this Arabian swordsman all decked out with this huge sword, he's waving around and Indiana Jones just pulls out a gun and shoots him. That's all over. You're expecting a big battle, but it's gone. That's the kind of power that Jesus has and he exercises it in those last days. But at the moment, we live in an age where Satan is bound, but he still has power. If you're a Christian and you know your sin's forgiven and you know you're part of the family of God, you are living evidence of Satan's binding. He has not been able to keep you in his kingdom. You've been freed from Christ to become a child of God. So Jesus gives these scribes these word pictures and then he gives them this grave warning, which is really what we want to talk about this morning. Again, let's read it. Going back to Mark chapter 3, verse 28. Truly, I tell you, uh, 
Jesus says that a number of times in the gospel to get people's attention. Uh, the other writers in the New Testament don't use that sort of phrase, but Jesus does here. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. That's a pretty serious warning, isn't it? When I was younger, I thought you could say, oh God, and oh Jesus, but you couldn't say Holy Spirit. It was a swear word. I thought that was the unforgivable sin. Well, it was a bit literal, wasn't it? But we do, un- we do misunderstand this verse, and people get very upset about it. I've counselled people in the past who thought divorce was the unforgivable sin, or adultery, or suicide. Nowadays, it's pedophilia or genocide. So we better be very careful with this and see what the text says. Well, let's begin by looking at two modern errors. The first is universalism. That's the idea that everyone makes it in the end. You can pay off your sins. You can go to purgatory and you can stay there for a while and pay off your sins. Everybody makes it in the long run. The second idea is annihilation. That is the idea that only Christians have an eternity before them. Everyone else rots in the grave. Both these views are dismissed by this text. Jesus presupposes here that we all live in the age to come, either in a state of forgiveness or in a state of unrelenting guilt. So Jesus gets our attention. And he presupposes too that you and I will sin and blaspheme. When we say, oh my God, or for God's sake, that's blasphemy. When we sing songs of praise to Jesus and we don't mean it, that's blasphemy. When we stand in a court of law and put our hand on the Bible and swear that we tell the truth and we don't, that's blasphemy. We all blaspheme and we all sin. But you notice what Jesus says here. If we confess our sins, we'll be forgiven. Then Jesus goes on and says, well, there is something that's unforgivable. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, let's try and work it out. Remember what Jesus has been doing here? He's been performing miracles in the power of the Spirit. And Luke records this statement from Jesus. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So here's Jesus the Son casting out demons by the Spirit in order to establish the kingdom of the Father. In other words, God's kingly rule becomes a reality by the power of the Spirit through Jesus. It's not just God's kingdom and Jesus. It all comes about by the power of the Spirit. Only by his divine power can evil be overthrown and Satan's grip loosened in our world and his kingdom eventually vanquished. So the Holy Spirit's presence in the miracles... And the casting out of demons is really, really important. So for these scribes to say that Jesus casts out demons in the name of Beelzebub, Satan, is a blasphemous assault on the Holy Spirit. What the grace-filled Spirit was doing through Jesus, they call evil. You see, you can reject Jesus. And you may have been doing so up until now. The religious leaders from Jerusalem did that, but they went one step further. 
They regarded Jesus as an evil to be avoided. Have you met people like that? Perhaps you've posted a Christian opinion on the internet about some sort of issue. There's been some negative reaction to it. You've tried to debate or engage them, but you've been shouted down. You're told that your opinion is stupid. It's out of date. It doesn't deserve to be listened to in this modern, enlightened age. That's the way these scribes were thinking. They rejected the only means by which they could be saved. It may be today that you're here under protest. You don't really believe that there can be a loving God when you look at the world around you. Perhaps you too attempted to go that one step further and look at God and say he must be evil. Don't go there. Because once you believe that, there is nowhere else to go. No place to hide and no opportunity for salvation. Christian believers, as I said, often get tied up in knots about this and wonder if they've committed the unforgivable sin. Perhaps there are some of you today who get anxious or worried about it. The scribes would never have given what Jesus told them a second thought. They didn't talk about it as they went back to Jerusalem. They weren't pondering over it. No, they were fully persuaded that Jesus was motivated by evil, that he was Satan's tool. You really have to have the Holy Spirit in you to think like the Holy Spirit, to feel the way a Christian feels. So the very fact that you worry about the question is the evidence that you need to say you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. Because that sin is a final rejection of Jesus. You see him as being so utterly evil that you have no desire for him, no time for him, no love for him, no faith in him. In that case, there's no hope. The only way to be saved is to trust in Jesus. Your trust may be weak, you might struggle with sin. Well, you remain part of that first group. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. If you confess them, you're forgiven. So Jesus' family, thinking that he was out of his mind, forgiven. But sin against the Holy Spirit, well, that's an entirely different category. There's a little snapshot at the end of this passage that offers us a bit of hope. Have a look at Mark chapter 3 and verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So where are you today? You're sitting at Jesus' feet? Are you seeking to do his will? Or do you find yourself with the scribes muttering, he has an unclean spirit? Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus' words. Uh, we pray that we might never...
fall into that temptation of believing that uh, your motives are very evil, that you don't really care for our world and you don't care for us. Thank you that you do forgive and forgiveness is part of your nature and love and grace abound. And we pray that uh, knowing what the unforgivable sin is, we might continue to speak to those who put up barriers and say no because your grace can break those down. So we pray for our friends and our family. We pray for our neighbours, our work colleagues, those, who's, those who dismiss you. We pray that we may have an opportunity to speak to them about your love and your grace. Amen. Now it's time to fill out our Care and Connect cards and I think I have one here somewhere. No, haven't got it, but you've got one. Uh, there it is, Marina's got one. Uh, if you'd like to fill that out, if you're new, we'd just like you to put your name down and perhaps uh, some, a question, comment. Uh, there's a bit to tick if you'd like to receive our email, our newsletter on email, and any comments or prayer requests, you could do that. And uh, just spend a couple of minutes doing that and then our uh, musicians will come back and lead us in our finish. <laughs>